Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Daniel Strain, and I'm here with my co-host, Jay Forrest. Hello. And today, our guest is Professor Rhonda McGee. She is Professor of Law at the University of San Francisco and a visiting scholar at the Berkeley Center for the Study of Law and Society. In May of this year, the Spiritual Naturalist Society published one of her articles. It's called, How Mindfulness Can Defeat Racial Bias which also appeared in the online magazine, Greater Good. In the article, Professor McGee writes about several practices described as color insight and explains how recent studies are showing that mindfulness and compassion practices can have a powerful impact on racial bias. Her book will be submitted for publication this year and it is called The Way of Color Insight, Understanding Race in Our Lives Through Mindfulness-Based Color Insight. Thank you so much, uh, Rhonda, for joining us today, and uh, we're thrilled to have you and look forward to this discussion. Thank you so much. And just a one quick correction. Um, the title that you just gave is actually to an article that's already available. Um, it's a fairly long article, <laughs> but it does provide a, a kind of a an introduction to uh, and a discussion of some of the concepts that we'll be talking about today. So, so the piece, um, both the the uh, the essay that you've already published, um, and I'm grateful for that on your website, but is is one piece. And then a, a longer discussion is already available. Um, it was published by the Georgetown Journal on um, modern critical race perspectives earlier this year. But it's called the Way of Color Insight, as you described it. Oh, okay. My apologies. Uh, thank yeah, you for, be, for happy to make a copy of that available. If if you can't find one online, I can send you a PDF so that you okay. can have it. That would be great. And we'll make sure that there's a link to it on the webpage that hosts this episode. Great. Well, um, so color insight, um, maybe I should start with just uh, um, how did you get involved in this field in general? Is meditation and mindfulness something that's part of your life? Yes, thank you so much for asking. Um, I, it's an interesting question for me how I got involved because um, on the one hand I can say uh, I've been fortunate to have been introduced to um, meditation by um, excellent teachers uh, of deep uh, practice and, and, and uh, traditional grounding, uh, like, for example, Norman Fisher, a, f a former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, who um, is a nationally recognized um, Zen uh, teacher, practitioner. He right now runs an organization called Everyday Zen, uh, based out here in California. And about Around 2003 or 2004, I was fortunate to meet Norman and to be invited into a circle of meditating lawyers, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so that began um, my, I would say, um, introduction to 
mindfulness from a, a kind of a Zen Buddhist perspective, but one that had been in some ways secularized. I mean, Norman was already on the path of what he is calling everyday Zen, which is an intentional effort to um, make the practices and teaching teachings of his own diverse Zen deep, but other, he's a, he has some Judas, um, Ju- uh, a Jewish background. So he also brings in um, mystical Jewish, Jewish contemplation as well. So he was already on a path toward um, looking at and exploring ways of making those practices really useful and helpful to people like us, lawyers, law professors, judges, who are really engaged in the world. And so that's, that was one doorway into a kind of a more systematic introduction to the practice. Uh, before that, um, I had been experimenting on my own with um, exploring um, practices for awareness and deepening compassion and had discovered mindfulness and movement-based practices, yoga, etc. cetera. Um, but well before that, uh, I should say, in a way, I think of my very first teachers in the area of contemplation as being People I grew up around, you know, I grew up in, um, I was born in Kinston, North Carolina, a little town in the South, and I had a grandmother who had been called into the ministry. Um, I've since learned that I've come from a line of people who were ministers and preachers, as we call them, uh, in the South, in the Christian tradition with which I'm most familiar. And so, um, in a certain sense, as a very little girl, watching the kind of... um, devotional practices that my grandmother engaged in every morning um, before dawn, before getting all of us uh, up and fed and out of the house and getting herself to work. Um, Seeing that kind of commitment to an inner life that could be of benefit um, not only to herself, but as a support for the work that she would do in the world was something that I was um, impressed by as a very young girl um, so I think there, I, I, I have had many doorways into um, contemplative practice and a kind of way of being in the world that's infused with a com- these kinds of commitments. But it was um, probably that those, those um, opportunities to, to work with Norman and to reflect with this group of lawyers uh, on ways of bringing mindfulness to bear on our work that really inspired me to bring it into the work that I was by then doing as a law professor at the University of San Francisco, where I was teaching a lot of different classes, but some of the classes in particular had me looking at um, race and other forms of um, identity and issues of justice and justice, equality and inequality. Um, and so I started to explore bringing mindfulness practices into that part of the work of seeking justice in the world. That's really fascinating. Um, thank you for that. The interesting thing about, um, I also have a conservative Christian background, uh, the family that I come out of, uh, and I like to say that it wasn't really until I later learned about Buddhism and Taoism and meditation and Zen that I started to really appreciate uh, Jesus and mm-hmm. uh, the teachings of the historical mm-hmm. you know, teachings written 
Um, and, you know, uh, I remember people like you've described in, in my background and coming, you know, before I came to these sorts of contemplative practices, I was, uh, and still am involved in the humanist movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, and before that, the secular humanist movement, the, uh, the atheists and, there's just nothing in their that philosophy that approaches the kind of formative, transformative sorts of um, activities, um, and that's what I had realized and started looking for uh, ways for naturalists to to approach that. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's really interesting. Um, you mentioned in the shorter article um, mm -hmm. that you you think that this kind of work could be helpful for police training, mm -hmm. um, but there's also everyday kind of bi not the big events like that, but the yeah. everyday kind of biases yeah. and a lot more insidious <laughs> ways in which mm -hmm. um, these we're all involved in that, and um, you know, so I. I wonder if uh, if you could explain for our audience a little bit more about color insight and, and how that works. Yeah. Yeah. So as you just pointed out, I think um, I think when we talk about bias, we're really just in a sense talking about an aspect of how the mind works. And certainly one of the, dimensions of contemplative practice that I'm drawn to are these practices that help us create space for regular exploration of that aspect of, of what it feels like to be alive, like what the thoughts that arise and occur to us, the experiences we have of being, um, you know, drawn toward or repelled by, right, the attachments, the aversions, bringing real sort of granular awareness to how it is that we perceive the world and then respond, re, you know, respond ideally, but many times we are just reacting without in a sort of an almost automatic way to the stimuli of the world. And so that's a general phenomenon that applies really in all walks of life. And, you know, we're constantly sort of, we like this, we don't like this, we're judging, we're sort of um, evaluating um, so much in our everyday lives. And, you know, so that's, it's a part of what it means to be human, I think, really, to be engaged in perceiving the world. And then, you know, um, we don't know really what comes first, chicken or egg, the kind of emotion tone, the feeling tone, we like this, we don't. And then the thoughts about why, the judgments and the stories we tell. Um, for me, really looking at these a the aspects of how the mind works, um, dovetailed really nicely with an exploration of how, how we do all of what I just described when it comes to our interactions with other people. We very commonly as human beings um, categorize people. I mean, the idea that we categorize people is by itself shouldn't, should be neither shocking or disturbing. Again, we've inherited these phenomenal brains that have um, as one of its, you know, um, myriad incredible um, different capacities, a capacity to kind of move through the world that's aided by the way in which the brain is 
so adept at categorizing and placing um, things that we've encountered before um, into what social psychologists call, call schemas, like ways of holding subsets of things we've engaged with before. So for example, we have a schema for a chair such that when we encounter something that has the same kind of four legs, a seat in the back, we don't have to pause and really break out the deep inquiry into what is this. We know it's a chair. We know if we're tired, we can sit on it. And that frees us up to do all kinds of higher level order thinking. Um, so, and so in that sense, the fact that the brain categorizes, creates um, uh, sort of um, pockets, if you will, in which we sort of drop prior experiences and rely a lot on those kind of free conceptions to move quickly and efficiently through the world, that is just, we've learned um, from looking at social psychologists, neurobiologists, this is sort of what the brain does. And again, it's often quite efficient and quite useful, but a problem arises, of course, and certainly we, we can problematize this through the lens of contemplative awareness and the desire for a deeper engagement with each other and connection with each other. So the problem can arise when we are doing this more or less unconsciously with human beings. Obviously, in many important ways, a human being is not a chair and is not a sort of merely a tool to be used and manipulated in, in, that, other, in, in that way. But our brains sometimes um, need to be supported in fully understanding that because um, we have inherited through our everyday lives, through the lives we live embedded in cultures, which are constantly training us around these things, notions about who we are, what categories we fit into, what other people, how other people categorize us, and, you know, what sorts of assumptions we're going to be met with in the world, and, you know, who we can look at as our familiars and people more like us, and who we can sort of maybe hold at a little bit more social distance um, and see as perhaps less like us, right? So these notions of the idea, the, the practices of categorizing and creating schemas, when we're applying it to human beings, we then create schemas for not just male and female, but um, even, which is a kind of a broad, you know, gender um, and age, our social psychologists tell us schemas that are almost pervasive across cultures. I mean, it's, as I'm always hesitant to say, they're 100% universal. And certainly the way we deal with gender and age is not, you know, that differs quite a bit across cultures. But the idea that we recognize gender differences, we recognize age differences, and we accord certain base level assumptions to people based on their age, their gender, um, is something that's, that, you know, again, you can find some variation on that all over the place. And, but those are sort of, so those are considered to be sort of the kind of core identity categories where we can find this kind of um, or organizing going on pervasively across societies. And then within societies, we've created, depending on the society, other relevant schemas. So we may be more or less attuned to race, depending on the society that we're in in America, given our history and our culture. We've created really and constructed all this very robust set of ideas, ideologies, presumptions, mm -hmm. stereotypes around race. And so it's really hard in this culture to escape having some kind of categories, some kind of preconceptions about people that are tied to this 
this concept that we call, we here call race and the way we define race, which again is differently done and differently understood in different cultures. But in terms of really looking at what the kinds of things we have to deal with here, in addition to race, uh, gender and age, race is certainly one, um, sex orientation, um, right? Another kind of area where, again, we've been taught different things culturally about um, who's included and what's not, what, you know, who's acceptable, what kinds of ways of being oriented to express oneself sexually are acceptable and what are less so. Um, so homophobia is something that, again, we've all had some experience with. Um, and we've also seen the culture kind of trying to have a conversation that might create more sort of freedom of expression around that, even in our lifetimes. Um, so again, these are just some of the ways that these social identities and the ideas we have about them are pervasively a part of human experience. And again, the problem is when we sort of, rather than meeting each other um, with an openness to what might be present with this particular human being, we may be more or less guarded, defended, um, driven in, in ways that are more or less part of our consciousness by preconceptions, by stereotypes, by judgments that we make almost without realizing it. Um, when we look at somebody, when we see their name, um, right? I mean, we've, there's all kinds of research that shows um, in the last generation, we've had an incredible uh, proliferation of, of research to help underscore how pervasive this kind of biasing is. So there's a, um, a lot of uh, organizations, including Harvard and MIT, uh, lots of um, universities have been uh, really focused on helping provide ways of introducing each of us to the particular kinds of biases we have, because we've all been shaped and formed, grown up in different mm -hmm. subsets of our societies. So our biases are not all exactly the same, of course. And um, so we've been, in, I think, fortunate in our generation to have witnessed the proliferation of a number of electronic and other kind of online measures that can help raise our consciousness of our biases. So if anyone's interested in those, there's, um, it, if you just look up um, Project Implicit Bias, or type in or do a Google search for the IAT, which is the Implicit Associations Test, an online test that can help us get a sense for, ooh, that even though I think I'm pretty uh, neutral when it comes to um, having assumptions about men and women, when I do this sort of test online, there's a way in which, um, based on um, different associations and reaction times, these are tests that measure reaction times based on associations that we might ha hesitate around. So linking women with math. You know, we might be more hesitant to pair those two than we would men. And that, again, gives us a little bit of a purchase on the way, even though we might not be aware of it, we might actually have an embedded or a less than conscious bias that we're operating on. And so, um, you know, given my work as a lawyer and as a law professor has made me attuned to the ways that these biases can actually harm people. You know, there it's, it goes beyond just the fact that we're all, you know, different people. We all have biases. A th let a thousand flowers bloom, you know, to each <laughs> his own. There's, you know, a way in which that is, you know, going to be the case. We are going to express and be in, um, you know, these beautiful and diverse ways. But when our biases um, get in the way of our being able to connect with other people, our being able to accept 
and listen to one another. Um, these are, and, and more than that, when they actually support um, narratives, ideologies, politics that really um, can lead and to systems violence. and institutions. Mm -hmm. They can lead to yeah. violence, actually. And we are witnessing in this time a rise in hate crimes so that what we're talking about here isn't just abstract and philosophical. We are in the midst of a, a time, and I think, again, to speak about it a little bit sociologically, these times come, rise and fall. Like we go through periods where we're more or less beset with cultural uh, sort of um, ideologies that support heightening the sense of us versus them, me versus you, othering, if you will, um, inclusion and exclusion. And we happen to be, I think, in a period, the evidence is bearing it out, where we are being drawn into uh, ways of seeing the world that highlight difference and, and sort of invite us to, um, uh, you know, kind of focus in on our identities and try and find po political solace and, and inspiration in these identities and at the same time making it therefore harder to find common ground, um, easier to sort of target or scapegoat others. And so I think we're at a time where it's of particular value uh, and particular importance for us to really see how contemplative practices can support us in not just becoming more aware that our that of the way in which we engage in biasing and you know find ourselves caught up in everything I've just been describing, whether subtly, often it's very subtle. Right, or whether we find ourselves with suddenly in a conversation where we realize, wow, this isn't subtle at all. This is this is an expression of a kind of ideology, a kind of bias that I find troubling. How do I deal with that? I was going to say one of the things that struck me from what you continue to say is there's a lot of the conditioning. There's mm -hmm. conditioning from our culture. There's yes. conditioning from our families. And yes. we grow up immersed in this. We don't actually realize how inundated we are by these categories, these biases, yes. until we go out into the world. And one of the problems that you were saying how it kind of ebbs and flows, I mm -hmm. think that the, it ebbs and flows depending on how much light is sent, put on it. There's light mm -hmm. being put on it. That's what's good about it. The light mm -hmm. is being shown. Mm -hmm. And people are beginning to realize we have a problem that's just been mm -hmm. swept under the rug. It has mm -hmm. not been solved. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And what I find fascinating is you're bringing mindfulness because you talk about how I just got done saying how we're not aware of it, right? Yes. Well, what is mindfulness about? What is meditation about? Becoming aware. Being at the way that your mind attaches to things mm -hmm. and how it's averse to things. Exactly. And beginning to get to the place where you realize this person, let's say they're Hispanic, they come in and all of a sudden you feel that aversion. Mm -hmm. Ah, there's something deeper in there you need to look at. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Right. It really does take a deep mindfulness to start to get to the core of these biases. These schema that you talked about, they're, they're basically, I mean, this is another way of talking about what the Buddhists call uh, the concept of emptiness that, we, we attach these uh, labels and ideas to things and they're in, they're in reality, they're empty of those things. Mm -hmm. those, are, those are our suppositions on top of them. Mm 
Yes. And um, I really like the part where you make the distinction between color blindness and color insight because I grew up and I imagine a lot of white people in my generation had a similar experience. Um, I was fortunate to grow up in an environment that there was no overt racism going on, uh, name calling and disparaging remarks or that kind of thing. I was raised in a egalitarian, uh, liberal minded sort of environment. Mm -hmm. But, um, and part of that was, you know, and then later in life I got into, uh, I mentioned humanism and, uh, one of my things growing up that I loved was Star Trek. Yeah. And they talk about this humanist yeah. uh, utopia yes. vision of equality and everyone is equal. And so I, I was told and kind of thought my whole life that colorblindness was the ideal yeah. and the thing to try to be and try to make it so by being that way. Yeah. And so I felt like it was a form of activism to be colorblind. Yes. But later I came to realize that uh, as, as a person who was a member of a race that was dominant in the society, mm -hmm. I had the luxury of being colorblind. That mm -hmm. was a luxury that I had that someone else couldn't be colorblind if there are threats in their environment. Right. <laughs> and so by being colorblind, I was in a way being complicit with and, and allowing the, yes. the everything to occur you have to uh, as jay said shine light on these things and we have to be aware and not be afraid and what i really love about you putting this in the context of mindfulness and, and these sorts of practices is that um they immediately call on us to be more contemplative more thoughtful to set aside reactive emotion yeah. because uh you know for in a, in a way, it's even more important for the, the people, the liberal-minded uh, people to realize this because if someone, they're the people who get most upset at any kind of indication that they're a racist yes. because they associate that in their mind with lynchings and the, yes. the people that they themselves look at as the the worst of the worst, the Adolf Hitlers and the, and so... Yeah. You when when suggestions are made that hey you're you're like that there's this defensiveness and emotion that happens. Yes. And then the listening and communication stops. Right. And and I I'm, I'm very appreciative of of both of your reflections here. Um because this idea that we we're really trying to shine a light on these aspects of our our lives, our social lives, our own experiences. Um, and then in doing that, um, you know, shining a light doesn't always feel good, right? It often can make us very uncomfortable um, to the point of, you know, real distress for some people, as you're alluding to. Um, so there is really this um, call, I think, to... I, I, this is one of the reasons why I've been drawn to mindfulness and compassion practices as part of this work, to recognize what we're really up against, you know, with some not sugarcoating it and not, um, 
this isn't about but any kind of Pollyanna, you know, mindfulness and compassion is sort of a panacea. It's going to help us bypass the pain of what we're talking about. There's a lot of unacknowledged and sort of um, unhealed woundedness we each carry, I think, our, our communities carry, the nation carries, the world carries, associated with the things that we're talking about. And so, on the, and, and um, you know, we have inherited these, these stories about how we should hold it, right? So that you were trained in colorblindness. We were all in some way or another, I think in the last generation, there's no way you can escape being led to believe that the ideal way to deal with these issues is to, you know, get beyond them. In fact, as a person in law, I'm very familiar with the role that the law has played in promoting this idea of colorblindness. Um, you've got Supreme Court opinions that say the way to get beyond race is to get beyond race. And, you know, we will allow a little bit of affirmative action, but we're kind of going to hold our nose and, you know, hope that one day in the not too distant future, we won't need any of this because we want that day that we're colorblind is just around the corner. So there's been a lot in our culture to promote this idea. And, and of course, given the civil rights movement and before that, you know, the, which was trying to destabilize the structures of white supremacy and the legacies of white supremacy that were embedded in segregation, um, pol policies of segregation with regard to race. And again, there's an analog to the way in which women have fought for inclusion and other minorities as well rooted in, again, deeper, deeper practices. Slavery is just one of them, colonialism, right? So, and, and many of our institutions of deep renown, um, the courts, education systems, science, um, religions, have been part of the storytelling first around why we, why it's okay to sort of privilege and raise up some identities and subordinate others, right? But then we moved in the civil, through the, you know, the civil rights movement, we, we became ashamed of a lot of the ways, right? We had a sort of cultural moment of reckoning with, wow, um, we, 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 you know, we, we held people back unfairly through these practices. And now the best way to make sure we don't do any of that again is to just not recognize us, do, be, do as, as, you know, formidable a job as we can, as complete a job as we can to just um, make race irrelevant, make gender something we hardly see. But of course, again, that would be in a way quite beautiful. We know that Martin Luther King's own language is just one um, inspirational figure in all of this work, right? His, um, his uh, uh, invocation that we judge each other by the content of our character rather than the color of our skin, you know, that has been sort of a clarion call in some ways in the move toward, well, this is what we do. We don't, we don't want to, we don't want to judge each other by the color of skin. So perhaps the way to do that is to act as if we sort of don't see it at all. Mm. The problem is just what we started the conversation or just, you know, we, we discussed a bit before, which is that our brains do see these things. I mean, we, we, we can't in a way function colorblind. I've had a friend who's a psychologist who says, Think about, we, we sort of, for example, have an analog to this colorblindness when it comes to gender, where we sort of are, you know, we want to say we're not sexist. We, you know, in many, many ways, we, we, we try as much as possible to create space for all different genders. But in the gender realm, we 
don't go so far as to say we're gender blind, partly because <laughs> for most of us, our entire reproductive and so much of the zest of life, right, comes from having some real awareness, um, right, especially for that one special person, right, of what kind of gender they seem that's to represent. So that's we, a great comparison, yeah. Right, we would never say, um, gender, but we might say we're working with the way we work with you. <laughs> but that we're blind, we know yeah. that's not real and true. It's not, wouldn't really like resonate with our physical kind of being. Well, and I look at it kind of like if you were an inspector and mm -hmm. uh, there was some killer going around killing people with red hair, mm -hmm. you would not hire an inspector to follow that case <laughs> who said, I don't see hair color. I can't see hair color. Because they couldn't, they would be powerless to follow the case and, right address the issue without being able to see who has red hair and who doesn't who so who's right. being targeted um and in the killer in my analogy here is not just those people who are the racist it's mm -hmm. the killer within all of us it's that element well it, yes it is the fact that in our culture and society race and ideas of race have been tied to so much that matters, whether it be neighborhoods that are racially identifiable, that we've been trained to kind of know in our region, you know, what kind of neighborhood we're going to go into. Um, and, and we've got ideas about whether we're safe or not that are tied to that. And, and we've got some stories about how that makes sense to be mindful of where we are. And if, you know, if race is a factor in that, even though we might want to disrupt those assumptions and, and, and not assume that a neighborhood is safe or not, just based on these notions of racial identifiability, the part of us that is very sensitive to threat and has been trained to link race with vulnerability, certain types of races with threats, is alive and well despite whatever consciousness we might try to be developing to neutralize that. And so, and, and that's just one example, but there's so many ways that we've been trained to sort of think, you know, um, when we think uh, of who's most appropriate in certain roles, whether it be an athlete on the one hand, um, uh, an intellectual on the other, there might be race and gender ways that we, we just become more comfortable. The pictures that come up in our head have, may have a race or a gender to them. And again, because our society has run that, like in other words, um, we can be, I, I invite people to oftentimes in my workshops and classes to reflect on the ways that we've been subtly trained in all of these things, such that for just there's, you know, a variety of ways we train. We get trained with jokes, right? The kind of ways that people make jokes about different ethnicities and groups around us. Um, sometimes they realize it's a little off color, but it happens. It happens even when we're children and throughout in our communities. Um, sometimes we're trained with being teased about the sorts of things we're interested in. I have some students who, when they carry around books about race, if they're white, they will get called out by people. Why are you reading that book? As if, right, that's a topic for people not, not like you, right? So there are all kinds of very subtle ways, um, you know, and sometimes much less subtle, right? I have people who share all kinds of stories with me of, for example, a woman who came to this country as an au pair to work you know, being a nanny for um, a white family. She herself was racialized as white here, but came from a country where race wasn't a salient. 
And so when she came here, she found herself being attracted to a person who was uh, an African-American man. And she was surprised to have the father in the household just pull her aside and say, as long as you work in this family, you are not to date black men. And she just, you know, this was a shocking thing for her to hear, but she was an adult young woman in America. Um, and while she had heard about racism and knew about racism, she'd never had anybody just say something so, like such a blatantly explicit training, if you will, mm. in what was mm -hmm. acceptable and not in that space. So what I um, tend to invite my uh, workshop participants and others to do is to sort of create space in our mindfulness practice for reflecting on the ways we've, we've been trained in subtle ways about all these things, the signals we got, what neighborhoods we could feel we could care about, we, what types of people mattered, what, um, you know, what punishment we might get for making people feel uncomfortable about racial injustice, right? You know, some of us have experiences of, you know, being the person who got chided for, for caring about racism, right? It's, oh my God, you're bringing that up again. So there's very, very many ways that we carry in us, again, uh, on the range from very subtle to very explicit trainings about race and identity and, and what matters and what doesn't, what we're, who we can care about, who we can't. Um, and so bringing mindfulness in as a way of allowing us to, at least as a first principle and a pro like a first level of projects, become more comfortable acknowledging what we, what, what's in us about this and more able to, to, to talk about it without shame because again, I don't, I mean, I think we are, we inherit a lot. The, the idea that if we're good people, we won't carry any of this, I think is, is a kind of a conceit or facile way of dealing with what it means to be a human being. We're immersed, like, as you were saying before, Jay, I think it was, we're immersed in these cultures, right? It's naive to think yes. that you're not influenced by it. Yes. And the other thing, the other thing is we have to realize Color blindness would be good and fine if color wasn't an issue, but it is. Mm -hmm. It's an issue for uh, many, many people in this country. Right. It's an issue both for the person having the bias and the person experiencing the other end of that situation. But then you've got structures, structures that are put in place that have biases towards those people who are considered minorities, whether they're Hispanic, African-American, mm -hmm. uh, Asian, all these people have to struggle against this domination from from this structure, whether it's the uh, law enforcement, whether it's judicial, going through the courts, and you know this, yeah. whether it's religious. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, my, myself, I was trained with the Assemblies of God. That was my, my uh, educational background. And the Assemblies of God broke between the uh, black members and the white members. They actually mm. split the denomination because of, of, uh, because of race. And that's yeah. everywhere. Religion, social, culture, mm -hmm. community centers, everywhere. And until that's gone, there's no such thing as color blindness. Right. You need color insight. Exactly. Rhonda, you mentioned in the, uh, in the short article, um, you had a sidebar with different specific practices. I want to make sure we get time to give yeah. a quick 
uh, coverage of these because we've been talking in general terms, with specific terms about the issues, but general yeah. terms about the mindfulness so far. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of three of these things uh, that were mentioned, one is called ICU. The other one is Insight Dialogue, and there's another one mentioned, MLK's Equanimity, Martin Luther King's Equanimity. Yeah. And um, could you just briefly describe each of these three uh, for us, uh, like how it works, what what does a person do, uh, <laughs> you know, the process of, of the practice? Well, I mean, I will do what I can as in the time that we have. As we've, we're somewhat short on time now, but and I'll refer people to the article for a little bit more discussion, or I'd be happy to have a part two of this conversation where we talk more about the practice. But, um, you know, in general, what I'm doing is breaking down particular aspects of what, what by what, it, what, what comprises bias, right? So helping, um, for example, in the, let's take, let's take the equanimity practice as one. Um, this is a practice that um, derives from a story that is based in fact and is reported in a, uh, a book written by uh, a, a professor of physics, actually, uh, emeritus at, um, at, M- at um, Amherst University. His name is Arthur Zions. And he recounts in this beautiful book um, called Meditation as Contemplative Inquiry, When Knowing Becomes Love. Right? He has this beautiful book about the applications of what we're talking about to knowing anything more, more richly. So knowing physics, which is his area, but also knowing how race operates, right? How we can bring this contemplative dimension into our work. And so in the course of that book, he describes um, the story of, of Martin Luther King being um, really threatened in his lifetime, having been the victim of bombings, his house being bombed, the particular night on which his, his residence was bombed, and how community members came and wanted to really inspire him to toward vengeance, right? To realize we can, you know, you can't meet violence with nonviolence all the time. At some point, you have to take up and defend yourselves and defend your family and your children. And Martin Luther King's message to this crowd of people who loved him and cared about him was an invitation, really, to sort of imagine. Um, a way of approaching this problem that might bring people together as opposed to continuing a cycle of violence. In a way, sort of um, rising, imagining, envisioning a kind of a place outside the maelstrom of the conflict. Um, you might say it's a, a, a position above, but it could be considered out on the periphery of a circle if that imagery works better for you. But the idea is to kind of create some spacious capacity to hold participants in a conflict, and even one in which you're involved, but at a certain kind of distance, and through which you might then be able to arrive at an awareness of the whole and uh, a kind of an insight about a way of responding, not to ignore it or be pacifist, but to respond in a way that might contemplate that we want to restore right relationship and right engagement with each other. And so ideally, how we respond needs to be informed as much as possible by a capacity to see the whole rather than simply to be responding from that wounded place of our own limited experience and desire for vengeance. And so it's kind of, it's called an equanimity practice because it is about 
finding a place from which you can perceive more of the whole and respond rather than react, uh, which is in essence what Martin Luther King kind of preached to the crowd in that moment where he could have, obviously, we would have almost, all, many of us would have forgiven him. I know many people would have said, well, at this point, moment, you have to lay down nonviolence and come up with some kind of other response. So um, I find his example in that moment, in those kinds of really, you know, because if he can do it in that kind of very intense setting where his children have a lot, his children's lives have just been threatened. If he can summon in him this and in, in, in inspire in others a way of meeting even the most intense vulnerability with an awareness that if we're going to respond in a way that might actually move us toward ultimate peace, we need to have this capacity to move out of our limited perspective and be able to see things from a more holistic perspective. And from there, since and to some insight about how better to respond. Now, this is not to say we'll get the perfect response or we won't need to kind of take another action. But the idea is to kind of realize our positionality and the way in which we might be tempted to respond, to react from a place of mm, almost automatic um, identification with a sense of grievance when what might be better called for is this capacity to see our way toward a holistic response and a way of continuing to meet the harm, but in doing so not to create more harm. First, do no harm, right? And so from that, imagining practices that actually put us in a place for what's called equanimity, this balanced way of seeing our inherent interconnectedness. So that's just one example, but there are others that I talk about in the writings that I've done. And, and again, I'm happy to, to provide, example, provide access to those and um, really, I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to share a little bit about the work that I've been doing with well, you. I hope you share a lot. Um, <laughs> I'd really love to, uh, I think a part two to this would be great. And I also think that uh, maybe even some other pieces we could put into our archives and uh, maybe even some more videos and things. I, I think that this is just a wonderful, wonderful thing you're doing. I think what you're doing is a living example of, of that kind of effort. And uh, I thank you for it. And thank you for being here with us today. Um, but really, let's let's seriously follow up on this because uh, I I want to hear a lot more. Great, I would love to stay in in communication in what I consider to be communion with with you you all and your organization because for me that's really the heart of why I do what I do um, to be in communion with with people who are trying to make a positive difference in the world. So I honor what you're doing and thank you for having me be a part of it in some small way. Thank you. When you said uh, earlier, when you were starting out, you said that, you know, we all have experienced these little biases and people thinking they know us just because they know one thing about us, that sort of thing. We've all had that experience. But you said that, uh, however, it's not just that lighthearted literal, these things matter. They they have big impacts on the well-being of, of people. And that, in a nutshell, is what why we're doing what we're doing. We, you know, people want us to get into a lot of different areas and we, we tend to stay focused on the personal spiritual practice of self-development because the person in the mirror is the person you can most begin with. And yes. I look at it kind of like we're addressing the 
the operating system of our society. It's the root out of which everything else grows. Beautiful. And uh, so um, that's why I love what you're doing. So thank you very much. And uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here and uh, really appreciate it and wish you the best. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and become a member at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemens Rood. Jay Forrest is our technical director. Please share our program and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today.